you're listening to sermons from Grace Bible Church in Eufaula, Oklahoma. We're a church on mission to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Learn more at gbcufaula.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. And we are slowly but surely making our way through 1 John. It's been a blessing. Amen. So we're going to be in verses 6 through 12. This is the word of God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth for all three that testified the spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree if we receive the testimony of men the testimony of god is greater for this is the testimony of god that he has borne concerning his son whoever believes in the son of god has the testimony in himself whoever does not believe has made him a liar Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Let's pray one more time. God, again, we thank you so much for today that we get to gather together to go through this set of scriptures, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we go through it, Lord, that, God, you would give us wisdom, understanding. God, as we go through this passage and the depths and riches that it holds for us, and we bask in the glory of Jesus Christ. May we look to the grace and mercy that is found in your Son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we look to him. And that we glorify him in all things because of what he has done and the testimony you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if many of you remember this, but in the summer of 2000, an incident kind of occurred around Eufaula that rocked our little community. I will never forget it. Because I was actually on a trip with my history teacher, Roger Thompson, uh, to Europe. And this was no vacation. You you woke up at 5 a.m. and you you went and saw stuff, okay, till about midnight. It was no vacation. The food wasn't that great. In fact, I lost like 15 pounds on this trip because of the walking and just the food was a little different. Okay, I I never tried black pudding. I didn't know really what it was, but it's basically like haggis, which is like the guts and inte- I, I think the intestines and everything, and um, deep fried in the animal's blood. Okay, I thought it was sausage. It was not. Okay, I lost a lot of weight on that trip. But it was a trip to the British Isles that several of our classmates went on, and it was, it was a great trip. And we were on this trip when we got the phone call 
We were kind of all together, several of us. A lot of the guys on the football team were on this trip, and our parents kind of called us all together. And they told us the news that our friend and teammate, Cameron Williams, had died. You see, he was one grade below us all through, school, all through our school. I mean, ever since kindergarten, pre-K. I mean, we all kind of grew up together. We played basketball, football together. Anytime there was a game, you know, we didn't have the iPhone, so we called up a friend and we said, hey, man, is there a game of basketball 21 at your house? Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll make my phone call. You make your phone calls. And we all kind of met together and we all played. And that basketball, football, we, we did this all of our life. We, we, had a, we had a great chemistry together because we just played together so much. So my mom, who I'm very grateful for, made me stay on this trip, but several of my friends flew back to attend the funeral. And I heard that the funeral was probably one of the biggest funerals follow has ever had because everybody in school, everyone in our community attended this funeral it was overflowing in the, the auditorium uh, because everybody knew Cameron. You see, Cameron was a guy who you looked at and you seriously thought when you looked at this guy, like this was a man among boys. He wasn't going to play on Saturday. They were talking about him playing on Sunday in professional football. This kid, I mean, he was about 15, 16 years old at this time. I'll never forget it. Before he passed, I saw this guy working out. He was a little over six foot. He was just a sophomore going to his junior year. Um, he, was a little, he was about 6'1", 225. And I'll never forget, he was bench pressing with reps, 315. You know, as like a 16-year-old kid. I saw him deadlifting for reps, 500 pounds, and squatting over 400 just for reps. He ran the 40 in about four or five seconds. This, this kid was a phenomenal athlete. In fact, the end of his sophomore year, there was a dunk competition, the Eric Coley Day at our school, and he won it as like a 10th grader. You know, I mean, this kid was unbelievable. I mean, he, he was so good that scouts were coming from OU because they were they one of our my classmates went and played there but then they said well who's this kid oh we want him for a middle linebacker I mean this this guy was such a stud I remember one time he broke his hand and he still wanted to play and so what they did is they casted his hand and they then they put this foam around his hand and it was like a club that this guy carried. You know, it was like a legal weapon. But I'll never forget, he made an interception with this club. Somehow he caught the ball on defense. I mean, with a casted hand. I don't know how he did it. He was a phenomenal athlete. One time I showed my son, my oldest son, a picture of him. I said, son, how old do you think this kid is? He's like, oh, dad, he's probably 24, 25. I said, son, he's 15 in this picture, okay? However, this is between his sophomore and junior year. He was working on a barge for a summer that year with a couple of friends. 
And they were out working all day, and then they were kind of drifting back to, to dock the barge. And as they passed, you know, they didn't want to dock. They were just ready to get home. They thought they'd cool off, so they jumped in and swam to shore not very far, not very far at all, about eight, ten foot of water. And because he was kind of, they thought he was dehydrated and was developing, working out, working, he, he started, he developed a cramp in both hamstrings. And he panicked. And one of our friends, he went back to swim to try to catch him because to, to, he was a lifeguard. And he was trying to hold him and carry him back. And he was trying to flip him over on his back and like he knew how to kind of carry him because he, he was a big guy. He was a man. But Cameron was so strong, he, he just like flipped this other guy over and started pushing him under. So the other guy had to give up. And he let him go. And Cameron drowned that day. I don't know Cameron's relationship with the Lord because I myself was coming just into the knowledge of salvation. I didn't know what to really say. Because, But when I look at his life, he had everything going for him. He had a great career ahead of him. He was healthy, strong as a healthy and strong as a horse. He was good looking, he was popular. But I now know about that day. There can only be one thought as we come to meet the creator of the heavens and the earth. And it's found in 1 John 5:12. Whoever has a son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. There's only two options that the Bible gives us. It's not a maybe. It's not a gray area. It's black and white. There's only one thing that's ever going to go through your mind as you come before the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And that is do you have the Son, Jesus Christ, as your advocate? Is He the one representing your life? Do you believe in Him? And if not, why? Why? As I was going through this, this is the question that I think John is answering for us today. Why should you believe in Jesus You see, he began with that aspect, and now he's closing with it. There's a testimony that we've seen him, we've touched him, and now he's going back. This is the testimony from God. It's kind of the bookends. And I know as we're coming into this, if you read it, you're probably thinking, man, this is a very puzzling and challenging set of scriptures to comprehend, and it is. It is. I, I had to study a lot for this one. It was very confusing at first. But however, I want to do my best for you to make you understand this set of scriptures because it is so rich, so deep, and so just wide with the grace and glory of Jesus Christ. You see, when we look at this passage, we have, to, I, we have to have the idea of a courtroom setting. 
That's kind of what's happening here. He's bringing witnesses. And there's a claim that's been brought before the court. And the claim is, why should I believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as the prophesied Messiah, as the Christ? So there's the claim. And now John is going to pull witnesses to the stand and he's going to evaluate them. He's going to try to show you, boom, this is a witness. This is a witness. This is a witness. There's two to three witnesses here. It meets the requirement of the law and they all agree. That's kind of the idea. There's a claim and there's a witness stand and we have to evaluate it. So I really have two points for this, really a main one and then a second one. The two points are, why should you believe in Jesus? Why should you believe in Jesus? And the second one is, why would you ever reject him? Why would you ever reject him? So the first one is the question, why should you believe in Jesus? Now we just talked about the claim, and I'm going to state it again through verses uh, 1 John 5, 5 through 6. So turn with me there in your Bible. And I put the LSB up here for this one because I, I really loved this translation here in verses 5 and 6. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. You see, John is claiming that this Jesus, this man, is who he says he is. He is the one. He's the one that, like in verse 6, this is the one. Who is the one that overcomes the world? But he who believes Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one referring back to Jesus as the Son of God. And in case, you, in case you missed it, the testimony is by water and blood, Jesus Christ. And he says it again. This is the one. It's, this is the one is like in an emphatic sense. It's like there's an exclamation mark after this is the one. But you have to understand, this is the one who came. And so, what John is doing here is he's kind of pointing out on how Jesus, how he is the Son of God, this is the one, but we know it because how he came into the world. Okay, it's kind of, it's pointing into how he came about. And one of the things is, is this life did not begin when he was born but it's existed from all eternity. That's what, when we look at the gospel account of John, in John 1, 1 through 2, John is again pointing this out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is the one who came into the world, the one that who has been created or not created, sorry, the one who has been ever since creation, before creation. He's been before creation. He was with God in the beginning. 
And this, in John 1, 14, he goes on, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. So the word who was before creation, before everything was with God in the beginning, he came as Jesus, the son of God, and he dwelt among us. And then John goes on in John 16, verse 28. He says, I came forth from the father. He was with the father. And I've come into the world. And I'm leaving the world again and going to my father. So John here, he's pointing out Jesus is the son of God. That is the claim he's making. And you see how this is the one, how he's put the one who came as in between the brackets of Jesus, the son of God and Jesus, how he is the Christ. And we see his mission of why he came from 1 John 3, 8. He appeared. Notice how he doesn't say created. He appeared because he existed before time began. He appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So what John is claiming here is that the incarnation of Jesus, the one who came into the world, is the central truth of our redemptive history. It's the foundation of the faith. It's what the gospel hinges upon. Everything is centered on how Jesus is the Son of God who appeared to us. He wasn't created, but he appeared to us. You see, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, there's no hope. If Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man, who could die at the cross, pay the penalty for our sins, your sins, and resurrect from the dead, then Paul says our faith is futile. You see, but there are many who deny that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, when you look at the Jews, he came to his own people, but the, his own people rejected him. So why should we believe? They didn't believe. Many times the Jews referred to him as a liar and a deceiver. That he was guilty of leading people astray. They accused him of being blasphemous, a glutton, a drunkard, of being insane, demon-possessed, which ultimately led to his crucifixion. And this was his own people. So why should we believe in him today? You know, many people say, well, you can believe that he was a good man, but he wasn't God. You should just believe him as a teacher. But why should you? Why not just believe him as a counselor, a good person, someone who shows you how to live a good life or be moral or just love? Why should you believe he is God incarnate, that he's God in the flesh, that he's fully God and fully man? When so much of the world says, he just is another man in history. Maybe he's a prophet. You see, this was exactly the point John was actually battling. John was battling a form of Gnosticism uh, called Serenthus, which taught that Jesus became the divine son of God at his baptism, but not before. And then that the divine spirit left him at the crucifixion because surely to goodness, God couldn't have died on the cross. 
So why should we believe this claim that Jesus is the Son of God, He is the Christ, and He was fully God and fully man? You see, this is how John actually starts out 1 John. Listen to this in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So John is saying at the beginning of his book, we've seen him with our eyes, we've touched him, we've looked upon him concerning the word of life. This we are testifying. That's an important word. Because he's saying that this is true. This word testify, it's kind of in a legal setting. He has firsthand knowledge. He's seen him. He's touched him. He's laid his hands upon him. He's hurting. And now, as we come in to chapter 5, John uses this word testify, which is the root word martus. It's where we get our English word martyr from. He uses it nine times here in this passage from verses 6 through 12. Nine times. And he's using it really with a three-fold witness here. The water, the blood, and the spirit. So there's a three-fold testimony here. And so when we look at this passage... In verses 6 through 8, we see the water, the blood, and the Spirit. But when we look at the water and the blood, I have to say, like again, this can be a difficult passage sometimes. So I'm going to give you a couple uh, of scenarios of what some people believe, and then I'm going to give you what I believe this passage is saying. Some people look at this passage, and when they hear the water and the blood, they think of John 19, 34, where Jesus is hanging on the cross and that the soldier comes up and pierces his side and immediately blood and water come out. And the reason why I don't think that John is referencing this here, because that is really pointing to his humanity on how he died. If any of us are laid upon a cross for hours and then we die and we're poked with a spear, there's going to be blood and water that pour out. So I don't think he's necessarily pointing to like the complete divinity here in verse in chapter 5. However, some believe the Eucharist look at this, and what that is is they just are the people that kind of look at this and say, well, this is a form of baptism in the Lord's Supper. And they allegorize this by saying it's the water that cleanses you, and it's the blood of Jesus and His covenant. And both of those things are true. When we look at the taking of the Lord's Supper and baptism, but I don't think that's what he's referencing here. Because if he's did, he could have used different language and he probably should have used different language. And it's also not in the context. 
So what I believe that this text is saying here, when we talk about the water and the blood, and when we see it, that it's talking about the Son of God and Jesus Christ, that it's referencing the life of Jesus. It's referencing his ministry. And we see his ministry started at his baptism. And then the blood was shed upon the cross where he said, it is finished. And these two events bracket the Lord's ministry. And it's both of them that the father testified concerning his son. So I believe that John, just like Mark here, on how Mark actually begins his book with Jesus' baptism and ends with his death and resurrection, John is in the same way showing that Jesus, through his water and his blood, that he is the Son of God. But some of you might ask, okay, I'm with you, but why is this important? Well, when we look at the testimony of the water at Jesus' baptism, if you remember, John the Baptist was in the wilderness. And he was out there in the wilderness, covered in like hair of an animal, eating locusts and honey. But he's claiming a message of repentance and baptism. And the idea of when you look at baptism in Judaism, it was a way that Gentiles could come clean and come into Judaism. They would repent of their paganism and then be baptized to represent their cleansing and their new form faith. So Jesus, about this time now, so John is out there and he's baptizing Jewish people. And now Jesus comes along and he comes to John and he says, I need to be baptized. And John, if you remember, tried to prevent him saying, no, no, no. I need to be baptized by you. Not you by me. And, and if you remember, John, he even recognized that this Jesus, when he saw Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. I need to be baptized by you. So John was shocked because he was a sinner. And Jesus was a sinless one. He, John the Baptist was lesser and Jesus was greater. Yet it was Jesus who came to be baptized. So why should we believe in Jesus because of the water testimony? Because by Jesus being baptized in the water, Jesus publicly identified with sinners like you and me. He identified as a sinner. He didn't claim exemption here. He performed perfect obedience. That's why when John baptized him, Jesus came up and immediately from the water, it says, behold, the heavens were open and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and resting upon him. And the voice from heaven from Matthew 3, 17 said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus, who identified as a sinner, and was baptized, God from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was Jesus whom God was well pleased. 
And it was this Jesus, the Son of God, who lived a perfect life, perfect obedience. He is the one who went to the cross, who was beaten with the cat of nine tails. He was crowned with thorns. He bled and died at the cross. You see, not only does the water testify to Jesus, but it's also by his blood. So why is the testimony of the blood important? What is the significance? The blood testifies that Jesus' sacrifice for sinners was sufficient. His blood that was shed on the cross now covers you that believe in him. It covers you. But not only that, it was when the blood was shed. I want you, I'm going to read a couple of verses here from Matthew 27, 51 through 54. And at the time when Jesus is on the cross, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, the Holy of Holies was blocked by the curtain that you could not go in except for once a year. And it was now ripped in two. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. If that wasn't enough, the tombs also were opened when the blood was spilt. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. But here it is. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And what did the testimony say? Truly, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. The blood testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. Hebrews 9, 19 through 20 says, or sorry, Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. You now have a relationship. You can have a relationship today with God the Father, Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. But there are so many people today. They look to the cross. And like Dolores Williams in her book, Sisters in the Wilderness, they say there's nothing there. God is not there. God is not at the cross. Others disregard the cross like chalk and man. They just say, oh, you can't look at that. That's just, that's a story of cosmic child abuse. I can't believe in the cross because what the father would put their son through. You see, but that's an ignorant statement because they have no idea of the Trinity on how it looks to glorify itself. How the Father looks to seek the glory of the Son and the Son the Father. But still others look at the cross and they just say, oh, if I look to the cross, you mean God can 
fulfill all my needs. And they look at it on what they can just get as just therapeutic benefits. But when we who believe look at the cross, we see that the King of heaven has come down and that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He gave his blood. When we look to the cross, we see that he gave his blood as a sacrifice to those who believe in him. He gave his blood so that we could be justified before God and made righteous. But not only made righteous before God, but also saved from the wrath to come. When we look to the cross, we see that he took our place. He suffered our punishment. He gave his blood so that we might be received by faith. First Peter says, it's by his wounds we have been healed. When we look to the cross, we see how he suffered so that we may be sanctified through his blood. When we look to the cross, we see that he was killed so that we could, would have confidence to come to the holy places because of his blood. When we look to the cross, as Ephesians 2.13 says, it is by Christ that we who were once far off, but we have been brought near because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But you might ask, how can I know this? How can I know that I know Jesus Christ and have a relationship with him? How can you know? It's the third part here. It's the witness of the Holy Spirit. See, the, in 1 John 5, 6 through 8, it says this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. He witnesses. Because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. You see, the third witness that points to Jesus is the Holy Spirit. He's, and he's referenced here in this set of Scripture three times in verses 6 through 8. And he's constantly known as the Spirit of truth because it's the Spirit that provides a consistent and continuous witness to Jesus as the Messiah. You see, the Spirit's mission was to bear witness to Christ. You have to see the mission of the Spirit. We see that in John 15, 26, Jesus is telling his disciples, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will be bear witness about me. It was the Spirit who is going to bear witness to Christ. So when we look at the water and the blood in the life of Jesus, you see, that's external. That's external. We can see that. We can see the water and the blood. But why the witness of the Spirit is so important is we need something internal to change us, to direct our hearts to God. Put a desire there to follow Him. You see, it's more than just we need to kind of change what we're doing or change our actions. We need a heart replacement. We need our spirit to come from death to life. We need, as John says, to be born again. But you might ask, 
What does this look like? You see, I'm a very objective person. I want to see something in action here. So I want to read Romans 8, 15 through 17. If you have it in your Bibles, turn there or follow me up on screen. This is so important. I love this set of scripture. Because we were once slaves to sin. We followed our passions, our flesh. But Paul says in Romans 8, 15 through 17, that you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, this word bears right here, it's passive. It's the Spirit doing the work in you. That it bears witness with our spirit. It comes in and it dwells and it lives inside of you. That we are children of God. And if children then heirs. You have an inheritance. And where does that come from? You're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. I love this set of scriptures because as we look that we're going to be glorified, again, this is something that's like, passive that's happening to us but yet it's in the past already it's something that's already happened when we become children of god we will be as if it already has happened glorified with him so when you believe in jesus christ you see this life how jesus led a perfect obedient life to god something you and i had failed at. And when you see his perfect life, perfect life as he was hung on the cross to sacrifice for our sins and take our punishment that we deserve, that we might be able to be received or by the Holy Spirit as it draws us to believe in God and be saved so that we can call out with our voice, Abba, Father, as children of God. A few weeks ago, I used this example on a Wednesday night. And I want you to imagine if everyone has ever known anybody who's adopted a child. I've known several. And when they, they decided that they wanted to adopt a child, they went on a search for a child. And I remember one couple that they, they wanted the perfect child. So they went and they looked in orphanages and foster homes and they found someone who fit them and they thought would, they would fit her as well. So they purchased and adopted this child to be called their daughter. And what's amazing to me and humbles me so much is that you and I, we were not the perfect child. We were the sinners. 
We were the ones who were wicked, slaves to sin. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, Christ died to purchase us out of that sin and call us children so that we might be adopted as heirs. That's an amazing truth. And this is the witness of the Holy Spirit that we can cry out, Abba, Father. You see, the law required two to three witnesses for a matter to be settled. The Father witnessed at the baptism and at the cross, and the Spirit witnesses to the believer. And the Spirit, the water, and the blood, they settle the matter. There's three witnesses. And they all agree. Do you agree? Do you agree with them as well? My question to you, if you do not, why would you ever reject him? Why would you ever reject him? You see, 1 John 5, 9 through 12, it says this. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have a couple, few questions here in conclusion. Why would you ever reject him and make him a liar? You see, people often say, I wish I could have faith. I wish I could believe like you. But my thing to you and answer is that everybody lives by faith. All day long, People trust one another. They trust their doctor. They trust their pharmacist. Sometimes they trust their cook at the restaurant. They even trust people driving in the right lane. If we can trust men, why can't we trust God? You see, not to trust him is you're making him a liar. And it's not just one time. By not trusting him today, you're repeatedly over and over calling God a liar. Why would you reject him when his witnesses all agree on the stand? Jesus is the son of God. Second. Why would you reject him when it's God's own testimony that leads to eternal life? You see, the purpose of God's testimony by the Spirit, the water, and the blood is so that sinners might receive eternal life. Why would you not receive that? 
God has given us eternal life, as verse 11 states. And this life, it's a gift. It's a, he gave it. God gave it. That's past tense. It's God who is giving it. It's God who is doing the work. It's a gift. It's not by works. You can't just go say, oh, I'm going to clean up my life and then I'll come and I'll get right and get God. It doesn't work like that. You don't get to purchase it. There's not enough money or gold in the world that can purchase this gift, but it's freely given. Freely given. And what makes it just so much more treasurable it was the costliest gift ever given. There's no diamonds, pearls that could ever measure the beauty of Jesus' gift. Third thing, why would you reject him when there's only two destinies? You see, there's only two destinies. There's those who follow him and have him and those who do not have him. Now, I want to point out here, I want you to notice this word, have, here in verses 10 and 12. It's present tense. It's present tense. If you have him, you have him right now. If you don't have him, you can have him right now, today. By believing and trusting in Him. Are you in possession of Jesus Christ? Really the question is, does Jesus possess you? See, if you want the gospel that gives life, you must receive Jesus as the word of life. Life flows from the Father to the Son and through the Son into us when we believe the gospel. See, eternal life is not about our being good, but it's about Christ being God. The next one is, why would you reject Him when you could be a witness yourself? You see, I want you to think now on the stand. Everyone who's testified, the spirit, the water, the blood, I cannot but picture this. When you die and your day comes before God and you're called to the stand, what are you going to say? I had a great career ahead of me. I was in great shape. I had all the talent in the world. I had all the money. I was healthy until I wasn't. What are you going to say? You see, whoever, verse 10, believes 
It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter where you come from. It's whoever believes. That's the standard. And the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. One day we can give a testimony to God. And last week Eric talked about being an overcomer. Do you want to know what a victorious life looks like? Do you? You want to know what it looks like to be victorious? It's to one day be on the stand. And you get to be a testimony to God. Saying, I believed in Jesus Christ and I was a witness for Christ. That's what a victorious life looks like. So how should we go about our day? Should we go about feeling, well, I didn't feel it today. Or, you know, oh, I, I don't know. I, don't, I did all this wrong. We need to quit being looking at our feelings and we need to live by facts, knowing that Christ Jesus is the one in who we stand and that we get to be a witness for. As Adrian Rogers said, as we look to our life, he says, it's, it is much better to be a shouting Christian than a doubting Christian. We ought not walk around like a question mark with our heads bent over, but like an exclamation mark. If you believe in Jesus today, you can walk out here right now without a question mark behind your name, with an exclamation mark that you can be a witness for God. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you so much for the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. God, how you, God, came and identified with sinners at your baptism, but yet lived a perfect and righteous life to purchase us at the cross where you gave your life, you bled and died. to make atoning sacrifice for my sins and the world. And Lord, I pray today as we come and as we have come under the teaching of your word, that God, you would move in us, that we would be shouting Christians, that we would be Christians with an exclamation part, uh, mark behind our name, so that we would look to be a witness for Christ Jesus knowing and walking that we are heirs, heirs of God, children of God that can cry out to the Father. God, you purchased us. And that we can come bearing all of our burdens to you because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray today that we believe in you, that this church would be a light and darkness, and that we would go forth exclaiming, proclaiming, shouting the victory in Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.